Welcome to The One Hour Intern. I'm your host, Will Brigger. Today, I'm lucky enough to sit down with NBA legend, Steve Kerr. Steve truly is one of the greats. His career in the NBA has spanned just over three decades, and he's been an integral part of two of the most infamous dynasties to date. Aside from an impressive athletic career, Steve's personal journey through life is captivating and demonstrates how he's able to ascend the pinnacle of the sport. Steve, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Will. So obviously you've had a very long career in the NBA. It'd be great to just hear what you think about the season wrapping up this year in just such a different way. Yeah, well, like everything else these days, the NBA season was bizarre. Took a lot of planning and hoops to jump through. And I'm really impressed with the job that the NBA did in in creating a bubble down in Orlando. Um, Amazed that all the players and coaches just stayed with it. Some of the teams were there for over three months, you know, away from their families, away from their homes. And they managed to finish the season out in a really great manner. The playoffs were exciting. Finals were great. Lakers were worthy champions. And all during a time when there's a global pandemic and the sport had been shut down for several months. So I think the the NBA deserves a lot of credit for figuring out how to get it done and finishing up the year. During this like incredible bubble season, there was a large social justice movement that went on throughout the players. And you as a coach and a player have taken advantage of your platform to share your opinion and voice the words of the marginalized. Can you talk about what you thought about the social justice movement by the players? Yeah, I think I thought it was really appropriate. I think the players these days understand more than ever the platform that they have, and they're using that platform, not just uh, social media, but just the power of their visibility and their fame, and they're trying to use it for good. And I think that what's really powerful is that the the league as a whole really supports the players and coaches. So it's been a collaboration. And I think a big part of the bubble and getting the league started back up, it came at the same time as the social justice movement really kicked into gear. And I thought the players in the league did an excellent job of really trying to carry the torch. And what have you talked about with your team with regards to this movement and making or everyone utilizes their platform to make appropriate change. We invite a lot of guest speakers to come in to talk about what's happening in the world. We really encourage our guys to use their voices. We've talked about the importance of voting. Generally, what I do as a coach is I try to inspire conversation, never feel like dictating anything. I just want them, want the players to, you know, have a voice and to have a a space to really think and discuss and to heal in many cases when there's pain involved. That's the beauty of being part of a team and being on a coaching staff is that it's a very intimate setting and you can take the time to do these kinds of things. So something that I, I think is very important. Yeah, of course. So now to the storyline of the interview. Aside from your illustrious career you've held on and off the court, one of the most fascinating aspects about your life and your success is your unusual upbringing, globetrotting the world. As a kid, when you were bouncing around from place to place, what was life like for you? Yeah, I had a pretty unique upbringing. My, my dad was a professor of Middle Eastern 
political science. And, and so I was born in Beirut, Lebanon, and spent quite a bit of time overseas. Our home base was Los Angeles. My dad was a professor at UCLA for 20 years through most of my childhood, but he would take sabbaticals every few years. So we traveled quite a bit, lived in Cairo, Egypt for three years, lived in uh, Tunisia, France, and of course, Los Angeles as well. So we really saw a lot of the world. I had three siblings. We were able to, to see the world and discuss the world every night at the dinner table. And I didn't realize at the time, but it was really the best education I could have received as a young kid. Can you talk about the specific aspect of this different education? I think being able to live in a different culture is a really unique experience. It's one thing to read about another culture, but another thing to live in one and to be an outcast, to be a visitor. That's a really important perspective. I think sometimes we all get wrapped up in our own world, wherever we live, in our own community. And so getting you know taken out of that comfort zone and being put into somebody else's realm is really powerful. And it teaches a lot. I think it teaches you to adapt, it teaches you to adjust and to be more empathetic and aware and understanding of other people's customs. And at the same time, it also teaches you that basically everybody is alike in that we're all looking for the same thing, which is a safe and happy environment, a family and people who love us and food on the table and a roof on our heads. Everybody wants the same thing, no matter what culture they live in. So getting that perspective, being overseas quite a bit was really important for me. Are there any particular moments or stories from that travel that really stand out as pivotal in your life experience? I think just I lived in Cairo, as I mentioned, for three years. I went to an American school just outside of Cairo, and I spoke Arabic pretty decently. This was junior high years, and I had to get around town with my Arabic. I went to school with kids literally from all over the world because most of the kids at the school were kids of businessmen, diplomats from probably a hundred different countries. It was an American school, but it was an international school, really. And I think just going to school every day and seeing so many different faces, hearing so many different languages was just an incredible way to be exposed to the world. In that educational experience of diversity, did you learn any lessons that you think are overlooked by the traditional upbringing in, in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I think um, probably not just in the U.S., probably everywhere. As I mentioned, we get wrapped up in our own world. And there's just, there's an entire world out there. And I think that's the lesson that was most important to me was I was just given a worldview that I otherwise wouldn't have had. So for example, I lived in Cairo when the Israeli-Egyptian-American peace agreement was agreed to in 1979. And the border opened up between Egypt and Israel, and my family and I drove across the border. We were among the, you know, the first people to actually utilize the uh, the border opening, and we went and visited Israel. And uh, being aware at the age of fourteen or fifteen, being aware that people couldn't do that before, and now, now all of a sudden, because of this peace agreement, we were able to drive through the border and go visit Israel and see the country, and that this was a historic world event, I don't think any of it would have registered 
if I had just grown up in Los Angeles the entire time. So I remember the trip. We swam in the Suez Canal with all these huge ships gliding by, going through the canal. And I remember visiting Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and, and staying at, at friends' homes in, in Israel. And it was pretty eye-opening for a teenager. Yeah. For people who don't have the ability to travel like this, or even people during the pandemic where no one can travel, do you have any recommendations of getting world perspective like this? Reading, I think reading is your ticket to the world. And in some ways, reading has become secondary because of the number of options at our fingertips. There's just so much amazing stuff to watch on TV, documentaries, so many different channels, some, so many interesting things to watch. I think a lot of great stuff there too, but I think there's something about reading a book, whether it's a novel or nonfiction, reading about a different country and a different world is crucial and it can inspire and it can really open up doors for people and then hopefully inspire them to travel later on in their life when they're capable of doing so. Yeah, of course. Now let's talk about your relationship with your family. As you mentioned, you have three siblings. Your father was a professor of Middle Eastern studies, what were the values that were passed on to you and your siblings? We were a pretty academic family. I was the black sheep. I was into sports from the time I was old enough to walk. I think I just wanted to have a ball in my hands. And so I'd come home from school every day, shoot baskets in my driveway. We had a hoop on the garage, on top of the garage, and I'd come home and shoot and I'd play whatever sport was in season. And I was obsessed. I was obsessed with sports. But my uh, family really valued academics. My siblings have all um, gone on to become very accomplished academics, a couple of PhDs, and my younger brother has his MBA. And so I'm actually the least educated of the group. I took a different path going into the sports world, but my parents were great. They were very supportive of my athletic endeavors as long as I was doing my homework. And I was lucky to, to live in a household that was so supportive and provided everything that, that I needed. You said that you were an outcast in different countries, but what was it like to be not necessarily an outcast, but different than the rest of your siblings? Yeah, it didn't feel that strange because my parents supported what I was doing. And my older brother loved sports too. So the two of us played basketball together in the driveway and went to Dodger games and UCLA games. And so we shared a love for sports, my dad as well. So I never felt like an outcast in my own family. It was more just that that was the route that I took, the sports route, and everybody supported it. And we all did our own things and we were encouraged to do so. Were there any stories where your parents taught you any other really important values that helped you and you kept throughout the rest of your life? I just think it more than anything, like good parents do, it was the consistency of the the daily messaging. There wasn't one story that stands out for me. It was just every day was very consistent. It was unconditional love, but also pretty strict guidelines. We weren't allowed to watch TV during the school week. We all had dinner together Monday through through Thursday, every school night or Sunday through Thursday. We had family dinners and and we all had chores and, and we all had to help with everything that was going on. And if we did something as a family, we were expected to be there. And, and I didn't always like it, but it was consistent. 
And I think the consistency of that kind of parenting was really uh, important for all of us because it gave us the foundation that we needed to build our lives. Yeah, of course. Were there any moments of failure when you didn't uphold your parents' standards or their strict guidelines? Yeah, there were, like all kids, there were plenty of moments of failure. I remember I stole a candy bar in second grade. I was walking home from elementary school and there was this pharmacy, little family-owned pharmacy on the corner. And I remember walking in and I didn't have any money and I really wanted this candy bar. And I thought I slyly got away with it and took it and walked out the door and walked about 10 feet and the owner of the store grabbed my shoulder and busted me. And I was terrified when I got home. My parents had already gotten the phone call from the uh, local pharmacists uh, alerting them of what happened. And when you're 10 years old or whatever I was, eight years old, that stuff's terrifying. Stuff like that, as a kid, you make mistakes and you've got to learn from it. And then my parents always made sure they taught us the, the value of right versus wrong and making good decisions and that sort of stuff. I got my I got in my fair share of trouble. Nothing major. I wasn't ever arrested, but typical teenage stuff, underage drinking, that kind of stuff. And my parents found out and weren't thrilled about it. And you live and you learn and everybody moves forward. And so the usual stuff. Yeah. Prior to turning 17, what was the biggest struggle that you had faced as a kid, if any? I didn't face any adversity in terms of real life stuff. I had uh, had a a great family and never lacked for food or roof over my head or people to love me. So I was incredibly blessed. I was probably my own biggest enemy growing up because I was so competitive that I just would lose it. I would completely lose my mind when things didn't go my way playing sports. If I made an out in baseball or had a bad shooting game in basketball, I would literally cry and throw tantrums. And I remember one game, one baseball game we played in this championship game and we lost. They gave us second place medals and we were lined up along the first baseline and they went over to the third baseline to hand the championship trophies to the team that won. And I took my medal and I threw it into the outfield. It was, I mean, I was such a brat. I was awful looking back on it now. Like I realized that was the fire that was inside me that I had to learn how to tame and utilize. So until, until I got older, I didn't really experience real adversity. I just faced my own sort of character flaws or demons, things that I had to learn how to manage. Eventually I did, but it took, it took a long time. Were there any particular strategies or steps that helped you tame that fire, but use it in the right way to become the successful basketball player that you were or deal with any other flaws that you saw in yourself? My parents were good. They were very quiet little league parents. They were never on the sidelines yelling and screaming. And back then it was different. Parents didn't go to every single game that you had. I remember my parents would They'd probably go to one out of every two or three games that I had because they were busy. And and so sometimes they would just drop me off at my game and somebody else's parents would drop me at home and you get home and you have dinner and they ask you how the game went. These days, it's like parents are in the stands filming the kid and breaking down the film afterwards. So 
in many ways, I was lucky because my parents were pretty hands-off. But when they did see all these tantrums, they didn't address it right away. They would always wait till we got home. And then once I had cooled off, they would ask me about it. And, and I'd have to explain to them I didn't know why these things were happening. But I was lucky to have uh, very rational, calm parents who talked through things. And as a result, I think over time, I just got embarrassed by my behavior. Finally, when I turned maybe about 15, even though I wanted to completely snap and go off the handle, I learned how to at least contain my emotion and keep it inside. But it was in there. And every once in a while, it would erupt. Like I said, I learned that's also what drove me and made me want to work hard and succeed. Yeah, of course. It was a, in many ways, it was a gift, too. Mm -hmm. This fire that you did have helped you play college basketball. Going into college, you didn't have very many recruitment offers, but you did have one offer from University of Arizona. Was it tough to handle the fact that you didn't have as many offers, but you really wanted to pursue this path? Yeah, it was really tough because I wanted so badly to be a college athlete. And I was just not recruited heavily at all. And uh, I had a few schools interested and then nothing really materialized until the summer before my freshman year. So I, I was literally offered a scholarship in early August to Arizona. That was three weeks before school started. So I was a late bloomer, kind of an underdog, and that was the chance I needed. And I got one. Before that time, I was really frustrated. And how did you deal with that frustration? I guess I was just realistic you know, about it. I was a kid who played all different sports. I didn't focus on basketball really until maybe my junior year in high school. And even then I played baseball in high school and went from one sport to the next. And in, in some ways that hurt me at the time because I probably didn't develop in basketball as quickly as I could have. But in other ways, it helped me because I think being an all-around athlete ultimately helped my uh, development as an athlete and as a basketball player too. You know, I just made other plans. I, I had a couple of schools that I had applied to that I was accepted to that I was going to just go and try to walk on without a scholarship offer. And I thought, I can't play college basketball. I'd like to get into coaching. And I would have found an alternate path. It, it wouldn't have been as successful or as much fun, but I would have, I would have found my way for sure. I knew what I wanted to do. You said you had other plans just in case. And some people say, you know, it's not safe or it's not smart to have a backup plan because you have to go all in. What do you feel about that mentality? No, I think backup plans are good. I, I like being all in. The advantage I had was that I loved what I was doing. So I think that when you have a passion for something, life's decisions become easier. Maybe there are fewer of them, but they're more clear. I think sometimes I think that people who have the most difficult decisions are the ones who are talented in so many different ways that they have a lot of options and they're trying to figure out which way to go. So in many ways, I think my single-mindedness helped me. But I think it's important for people to really recognize what gets them out of bed in the morning. What really excites you? What do you look forward to doing? Whatever that is, that should be the pursuit because ultimately you're lucky enough to do so, you want a job that you can look forward to and a career that you really enjoy. Yeah, of course. Obviously, 
at University of Arizona, you took advantage of your shot. Can you talk about your experience and what it was like playing with that chip on your shoulder and how you really took your game to the next level to be the pro that you became? I think when I got there, it was really the first time that I played basketball year-round. As I said, I've been a multi-athlete in high school and kind of went from one sport to the next. And then all of a sudden, I was practicing basketball three hours a day, seven days a week. So doing something every day and being locked in on it, I don't think I realized until then how much growth I had ahead of me, how much room for improvement there was. And my freshman year was pretty intimidating going against athletes who were bigger, stronger, faster than I was. But the work started to pay off. And maybe halfway through my freshman year, I started to realize, oh my God, I might be able to do this. I'm getting better. And from that point on, I every day I would work, whether the it was preseason, midseason, postseason, offseason. I was practicing and working every single day. And so my improvement took on a much steeper curve. And because of that improvement, I was really inspired too. I, I, I gained a lot of confidence and really found a purpose and a mission. Yeah. Another big mentality is 10,000 hours and you're an overnight success. Clearly, you're showing that you're an example of that. Can you talk about that mentality in your own life? Yeah, I've read all about the 10,000-hour rule. I believe in it. I think practice is, there's no substitute for it. But practicing with a purpose is really important. I think the, the key might not be the number of hours. It, it might be the intensity of the practice within those hours. And for sure, I ended up playing the NBA for 15 years. and was in college for five years because of an injury. Over 20 years of basketball, that's a lot of hours. But I i think I figured out how to practice and how to work. And that was important because the, the quality of the work leads to the subtle improvement. Because what happens is in the beginning, you get a steep curve of improvement. And then you reach a level where maybe you've reached your physical peak. And then it becomes more about the nuance and the the little things here and there. And I'm, I think it's true in any field, whether a musician or an artist or businessman or professor, anything, you get better. And then all of a sudden you realize there's really unique areas where you can improve. But in order to, to get there, you've got to practice really like focused practice, intense practice. It's not as much the hours as it is the uh, intensity of the preparation. And uh, that's what kind of makes it fun when you reach a certain level and you realize, oh man, there's a different level, but there's a different way to get there. Yeah, of course. During your college career, your father passed away and you don't need to discuss specifics and we can skip this question if you don't feel comfortable talking. But if you do, how did you feel or how did this affect you and how did you overcome the grief of losing such an important person in your life? Yeah, I don't mind talking about it. My dad was a victim of uh, terrorism in the Middle East. He he was a president of the American University in Beirut. So he left his job at UCLA in 1981 and went back to Beirut, where he had actually grown up as a student and a child of uh, American missionaries there in Beirut. So it was his dream job. And he took the job and in 1984, he was assassinated by terrorists and basically for being a prominent American in Beirut at the time. 
I was 18. I was a freshman at Arizona. And it's the only time I had ever experienced any real adversity in my life. I'm talking about devastation. Adversity is all relative, right? Not having a college scholarship is one thing, but the trauma of having your father murdered is a totally different deal. And so my world was shattered. And obviously that of my family, my siblings, my mom, you don't really prepare for anything like that. You go through the shock and the, the grief and the mourning and but what happens is every day you wake up and another day starts. So you realize pretty quickly, you don't really have a choice. You just have to keep moving. You keep doing what you're doing. And in my case, I probably dedicated myself even more so to basketball and to what I really enjoy. And it turned out that the couple of hours on the court that I could spend every day was the most cathartic of the day. For me during that time in the immediate aftermath. The real lesson was you just got to keep carry on. One of my favorite songs, the, the song from that band Fun, Carry On, I listen to it all the time. And that's very meaningful to me because I really believe that's how you have to, to approach life when things go wrong. You just got to carry on. And you got to also stick together with your family and with the people you love. And you got to not be afraid to ask for support and need support and reach out to people we love. And I learned about all those things along the way, but the biggest thing is you just, you keep going. Were there any people in particular that really helped you get through such a tough time? And if so, how did you find those people? I think it was mainly my teammates, to be honest with you. I was a freshman. This happened like halfway through my season, my freshman year. And just those were my best friends, the guys on the team. And uh, my family was actually scattered all over the world. My mom and my younger brother were living in, in Beirut at the time when my dad died. They ended up moving to Cairo, where my mom took a job at the American University and where my older brother was working. My sister lived in Taiwan at the time with her husband. And uh, so I didn't have any family in the United States, really other than my grandparents in Los Angeles. And uh, so I was in Tucson at the University of Arizona and I turned to my teammates. And, and that's you know one of the beautiful parts of sports is that you have this built-in family when you have teammates. You, you, it really becomes a second family. And so I, I just turned inward towards the team and felt their support and support of my coach, Lou Olson, who really helped me. And that was a critical support system that I had. Yeah. Of course. Were there any other moments? Obviously, that is something that changes the course of your life. But were there any other pivotal moments in your college experience? Yeah, I think I met my wife in college. I met my best friends to this day, or people I met in college. Building those relationships was really important. And then I think my overall experience at the university was crucial to my development as a basketball player as a human being, had an amazing college experience. And I think the basketball experience really set up the rest of my life in terms of what I was going to be doing. I didn't really think I'd want to play in the NBA, but the experience that I had at Arizona playing there under Coach Olson prepared me for it. And I was able to, to, to find my way into the NBA and play for 15 years. That whole college experience was all part of it. 
you did stay at University of Arizona for five years, like you said, because of an injury, but you didn't declare for the draft until your final year. Was there a particular reason for that? The main reason I wasn't good enough. The, the second reason was that people didn't really do that very often back then. It was generally only the very top guys. There wasn't really an alternate route. College basketball was still the best way to develop as a player. It was also the most fun time of my life, and I wasn't going to bypass that. But I wasn't a prospect that was considered very highly touted. At that time, only a handful of guys went went to the draft early, and I was having too much fun to even think about it anyway. Yeah. That kind of segues into the coffee break. Is there a particular story that stands out to you as a time where you were totally embarrassed or just a funny story from any period in your life? There's plenty of embarrassment. Well, lots of embarrassment. The most miserable time of my life was probably seventh, eighth grade. Wake up one morning, look in the mirror, and a pepperoni pizza had just developed on my face. I'm like, what the hell just happened? And you're like 13 years old, whatever it is, and you go to school and everybody's staring at you like, dude, you just eat a whole chocolate cake? You're already like awkward and it's a tough time anyway. And so I, I remember going to junior high, just like feeling like, what the hell's going on right now? I'm so embarrassed. I got all these zits all over my face and I'm like struggling through the day. And I swear to God, I'm on campus, walking through campus and a bird shits I'm not kidding, right onto my head. You want to talk about the low point of someone's life. 13 years old, major acne breakout, and a seagull takes a shit on your head at school. That's about as low as it gets. So, Isn't that supposed to be good luck? Doesn't that mean that the acne's going to go away tomorrow? <laughs> it did go away. It took about eight years, unfortunately. But it, maybe that was delayed good luck. <laughs> But I, I tell that story because my life got way better as I got older. It's funny. Some kids have like a relatively breezy time through high school and feel pretty good in about everything and, and have a smooth ride. A lot of kids don't. So I think a lot of people maybe assume since I played basketball in the NBA that I had an easy time growing up and I had an easy life, but I didn't have an easy time. I was an awkward kid and I was not BMOC and I had I had a lot of angst and anxiety and doubt and I was very self-conscious and I think that's far more common than not, right? And I think the reason I want to tell that story is that for, for anybody who's feeling that way, it gets better. <laughs> it gets better. After your high school experience and dealing with all that angst and things that every high schooler goes through, did you have any strategies or just ways to really get past it that helped you? I started out with Oxy-5. Put it on, on the <laughs> That was my first strategy. I think I, I didn't have any strategies. But to me, when you're like, when you're a kid, you just wake up and you go and then things happen. And But I had I had a lot of good stuff that was going on. So despite my anxiety or angst and awkwardness. I loved sports and I loved competing. And so I really threw myself into sports every day. 
And because I was so obsessed, I think it just carried me through the difficult time. And I think that's what a lot of people do is they find what they're really passionate about, music, drama, writing, reading, whatever it is. For me, it was sports. I just dove in head first and that really you know, carried me through. So before we move back to the chronological order of the uh, interview, I'll ask you one more coffee break question. Yeah. Right now, you hold the three-point shooting percentage in the league and two of your star players are arguably some of the best three-point shooters or the best three-point shooters of all time. How do you feel about your players coming close and potentially beating your percentage? <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's an interesting dynamic because Steph and Clay are Hall of Fame players, and I was a role player. When I played, people didn't shoot three-pointers that often. I was very selective. I would just shoot a couple of them every game. And I was always wide open when I shot them. I didn't, wasn't really good enough to shoot them off the dribble or with somebody all over me guarding me. I shot a high percentage because I was a, a good shooter, but also because I was wide open. These days, I was taking two a game, three a game. These guys, Steph and Clay, the degree of difficulty on their shots is so off the charts. They're taking 10, 15 threes a game. And so when people bring up the the percentage, which I have the edge on, uh, not by much, it's so out of whack because they're such dramatically better shooters than I ever was. So I just look at it like, I'll just hang on to the record. They can be way better. We'll just let people imagine that we're actually all in the same league by looking at those percentages and I'll just walk away. And I assume you're telling them to take all those shots from half court Really so difficult. That, so that they um, don't catch up to your record. Make sure you take all the half-court ones at the end of quarters. <laughs> so now to your NBA career. You were drafted by the Phoenix Suns in 1998. And then in the beginning of your career and at the end of your career, you bounced around from different teams. You played on the Suns, you played on the Magic, you played on the Spurs and the Trailblazers. What was it like to be bouncing around and not being in one place? I think that's one of the challenges to being in the NBA, especially once you have a family. When you have a family and you have kids and you get traded, it can be pretty rough. You have to decide whether you're going to uproot your family and move to a new city or go on your own, which is not a whole lot of fun because you, you miss your family, miss your kids. That's one of the things I talk to our players about a lot is uh, the perspective of being an NBA player. When I tell our guy, what I tell our guys is we don't really get paid to play basketball. Where we really earn our money is we get hurt, we get cut, we get traded, we get booed. We have to retire at a very young age compared to most people. We have to find a second career. Those are the downsides to being a professional basketball player. The upsides are obvious. It's an incredibly exciting profession and challenging. And to compete against the best players in the world is amazing. You have to accept all that as part of the bargain. That's part of the deal. And that's why you make a lot of money because people are just fascinated with it. And there's all these revenue streams that, that come in. And so you kind of have to accept all the adversity that comes and um, embrace the life and the, the opportunities you get and save your money, put your money away and, and really set up you know, your whole life beyond that. What lessons from facing that adversity do you think 
become relevant outside of the NBA that might have an influence to my listeners? I think there's a lot that can go wrong if you're an NBA player. I know for me, I was cut a couple times, traded several times. I think the probably what felt the worst to me was actually failing in a game where that felt important, letting people down, letting myself down, letting my teammates down, letting fans down. And that feeling of being a failure, even when you're being in the bigger picture successful, it's still there. And so I think for your listeners, I think the success and the failure stuff stays with you forever, no matter where you are, no matter how far you get. Even a guy like Steph Curry, who has won championships and won MVPs and has made all the money in the world, when he has a lousy game and we lose, he feels like a failure. And, and that's what drives him. And he comes back and he, he puts in this incredible amount of work the next day and the day after that. And part of understanding life and an NBA career it's all intertwined is it's kind of how everything goes. You win, you lose, you succeed, you fail, you get knocked down, you get up. And there's all kinds of emotion that exists within that and adversity, but you just keep moving on. Yeah. Keep working. Yeah. So the other part of your career was obviously being on the Chicago Bulls, something that the information about that is very widely spread. So I won't spend a lot of time there. And I'll just ask you, being on that team, being with players like Michael Jordan, what were the big lessons that you took away from being on the team and the attitudes of players like that? First, I was lucky to be on that team. It was a historic team, championship winning team. But play with Michael Jordan, it's like saying you played with Babe Ruth. He's one of the all-time legendary athletes in, in our country's history. And and uh, so to have that experience was just an incredible gift for me. I, I think to me, that's where I was able to probably get over the hump in terms of my own inhibitions, my own self-consciousness. Even though I made the NBA and played and had some success, I still felt self-conscious and nervous in big moments. And I think it took all the way until the time I got to the Bulls to lose my fear of failure. And that was probably the best gift I received from playing for the Bulls. It put me in positions to take shots that were the biggest shots of my life. And it required surmounting some personal nerves and obstacles that existed in my head. I was a player who got in my own way. And I, in some ways, I wish I could go back and do it over again. Because I feel like I could do a better job of just letting loose and playing. And I think I could be could have been better. But there were some lessons I learned in Chicago that allowed me to overcome those hurdles. Phil Jackson was an amazing coach, taught me about mindfulness, meditation, and breathing. And then Michael Jordan taught us all the value of just going for it. He failed all the time, but just nobody remembers the shots he missed. The lesson I learned was you got to go for it. And, and accept failure because nobody succeeds every time. But if you go for it, you're going to, and you get out of your own way, you're going to have some success too. And that's the, I think the real value, the real accomplishment is going for it and letting it all 
loose, letting it out and putting yourself out there. And that's, there's something really powerful about that. That mentality is a super hard mentality to grasp as a player, as a coach, and as a person, how have you been able to channel that mentality, but also make sure the people around you and your players have that mentality? I think it's important to have perspective. What I mean by that is we're lucky because we play basketball, right? So these moments that I talk about where there's a big shot, a big play, they are really important, but they're not, right? Nobody's going to die. It's a basketball going through a hoop. Now, if it goes in, there's millions of fans who are really excited. And as the personal achievement is really important. And from those perspectives, it's crucial. But perspective, having a life perspective to go along with that is really crucial. And that's what I try to do as a coach is keep things in perspective because there's so much pressure on these guys, especially today with social media. There's a guy in the finals, Danny Green, who plays for the Lakers. They were up 3-1 and he had a chance to make a shot to clinch the series and he missed the shot. And he got death threats on social media that night. What are we doing here? But that's the the country we live in. That's the state of the world these days. And so as a coach, I, I try as best I can to constantly teach and preach perspective that we're going to put all of our energy into this endeavor, but we're still playing basketball. And we got families, we got kids, we got things that are way more important. So let's strike that balance. And and if we can find that perspective, it's easier to relax and play. Yeah. Back to the social media thing. After social media had such a harsh reaction with Danny Green, I think it was MJ who tweeted, I wouldn't have been able to play in this social media era. How do you feel about that idea? I feel sorry for the current players. I feel sorry for... Our society in general, I feel sorry for young people who face similar sort of circumstances just in social settings. Growing up with all this social pressure, it was bad enough as a 13-year-old with acne getting getting shit on by birds. You throw social media into that. Somebody has a video of that. Look, a cur got hit by birds. I don't know how I would have dealt with that. And so in many ways, I just feel sorry for all of us, for just this world that we live in. And it makes me want to try to help people gain this perspective and find ways to uh, get through this constant judgment and criticism that creates this angst that contributes to so much of what happens in our society these days. And have you found any ways or any advice to give to players or people in your life to get through that? I think social media breaks are really good. I I find that the people I know who are not on social media at all tend to be happier. I think nature, getting outside and being in fresh air and putting the phone down is crucial. I think I find I'm, I'm a happier person when I'm engrossed in a book every night. And I don't exactly practice what I preach all the time. I'm on Twitter and I'm really engaged with this election and I'm tweeting articles that I read and I get wrapped up in politics and I'm a victim of this too and a perpetrator. But I find that when I get into a good book, 
and I read before bed instead of staring at, at Twitter, I sleep better. I wake up feeling better. I'm just in a better mood. And yet it's still pretty addictive to pick up that phone the next morning and start looking for news and scrolling. And it's a bizarre world and, and we're all trapped in it and we all have to navigate our way out. But I think there are natural ways out. The ones that I just mentioned are really the ones I try to focus. Yeah. So my next question is, after your basketball career, you had a lot of pivotal changes in your life. Deciding to retire, then becoming a broadcaster, deciding to be the manager or being asked to be the GM of the Suns, then stepping down, going back to broadcasting, and then taking the offer to be the coach of the Warriors. How did you know it was time for the change and how did you deal with each change? Well, I was really lucky. I got right into broadcasting as soon as I retired from playing. It was uh, 2003. I was with the Spurs. We won the championship and uh, I was 37. My body was breaking down. I was ready for a change and Turner Sports offered me this gig as a color commentator and I jumped at it. They were some of the best years of my life. I, I, I did it for four years was working one night a week every Thursday night. I was doing a game somewhere across the country and home after the travel involved. I was home five days a week with my kids who were young. It's an incredible time in my life. But after four years, I got a little bit anxious and competitive and had a chance to become the general manager of the Phoenix Suns. And I took the job, and did it for three years. It wasn't a job that I loved. Realized that I really was longing to coach, that that was going to be my ultimate dream job. So I left Phoenix after my contract was up three years in and went back to TV, got a got another job in broadcasting back at Turner and did that for four more years. So I loved TV. I loved working in basketball and it kept me engaged in the NBA and kept my relationships strong. And it allowed me to watch my kids graduate from high school and but during those last few years of television, that's when I was really zeroing in on coaching. So I spent a lot of time researching, visiting coaches, putting down plans, uh, building a video base of plays that I wanted to run, putting my thoughts on paper so that I would be prepared for the time that I got a job interview. And, that's, and that ultimately happened in 2014 when the Warriors called me and interviewed me for their opening. Yeah. With that opportunity, you built a championship team. The team was already good, but you took it to the next level. And now after an off year, this was a rebuilding year. You're coming back. What's it like to rebuild a team? What goes into it for you? Well, it's really fun. When we got here in 14, we already had a really good team and we just wanted to take the next step. And the team obviously really flourished. We had a group of guys who were ready to become stars. Steph, Clay, Draymond Green, they were all very young, but emerging. And uh, my timing was perfect taking this job because the team was already on really solid ground and had a great foundation. And, and it, the job was really about helping them grow and get to the next step, which we did and had a great run. But now coming off this worst record in the league season, during the pandemic, uh, it's a real challenge to, to try to rebuild the team. So the whole focus is on really starting over in a lot of ways, rebuilding 
through fundamentals and the basics and making sure our culture is strong, meaning what our players feel when they come into the building every day. Are they being productive? Are they seeing a good structure of work and productivity? And are we giving, are we providing them with the right instruction and the best instruction? And are we trying to generate the best chemistry we can? All those things factor into coaching. And uh, in a lot of ways, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a new challenge. You said you are rebuilding this year, but still the NBA has you ranked as in sixth place for contention of the championship next year. Is there anything that we can expect from, or that NBA fans or Warriors fans can expect from you in this, these coming months, any big changes, anything that you're willing to share that people can expect? I think the expectations are high because uh, Steph and Clay are coming back from injury. Obviously, those guys are such great players that with their talent comes high expectations. When you combine them with Draymond Green and Andrew Wiggins, we've got four really good players, really three all-star players, level players, and another guy, Andrew, who was the number one pick in the draft, who we think can be really good for us. The challenge is going to be bringing the young guys who all played last year from support roles into bigger roles. Our last team that won championships was so deep. We had veteran players like Andre Godala and Sean Livingston, David West, and Zaza Pachulia. These guys who were fantastic players. You don't have that kind of depth and, and veteran experience. Yeah. So the challenge and what we're trying to do is combine our core group that's coming back from injury with these, these young players. And then we're adding the second pick in the draft, which is exciting. Based on having the worst record in the league, we ended up with a high pick. So there's a lot to look forward to, but a lot of work too, and and we and a lot of unknowns. So we have we got to figure out who we are and what we're going to look like. Is there any player in your roster or in the draft that you see being or having a bigger role next year and really stepping up in those big times, like you said? I think Andrew Wiggins is going to surprise people. It's interesting. He was, as the number one pick in Minnesota, he was projected to be a superstar. And that's a pretty difficult platform to reach. So now that we have him in the second phase of his career and we have him in a different role, I'm excited for him. I think he's a really good player. He's a very good defensive player. He's going to be playing with great players, Steph, Clay, Draymond. He's going to have a lot of room to roam. I'm excited about Andrew and what he can bring to the team. And I think people maybe aren't really giving him enough credit for how good he can be. Yeah. So as we come to a close, I'll ask you just two more questions. The first is, after you've reached this pinnacle of success, being an NBA legend, how do you define success now? I think success now is utilizing all of the knowledge that I've gained over the years and trying to share it with the people in my world. And that means collaborating with my players and coaches and management and trying to to build the, the Warriors back up again. So success to me is ideally it'll show up in, in our record basketball, you got to win. Wins and losses is everything. So people will tell us from the outside if we're having success or not. That's the game we play is on the scoreboard. For me, if, if we can collaborate well, play with great energy, 
play together, play hard, draft the right player, and that I can play a role in all that as a coach, and I'll feel that this was a successful season. Yeah. What about on a bigger picture level, thinking about your whole life and finally reaching a position where you have access? Has your definition changed? Some people call it money. Some people call it happiness. Is there one big thing that stands out to you as what success is? I think happiness. For me, that means the joy that my family brings me every day. I've got three kids. All three have significant others that are a big part of our family. And we love the family that we've built. We love the life that we lead. I'm really lucky to have the career that I do. But if my career ends sometimes or sometimes soon or in the near future or in the distant future, whenever it is, my success and my joy and my happiness in life will still come from my family around me. So I've been really blessed in that regard. I feel successful no matter what. Yeah. Steve, thank you for everything. Before you go, I'll ask you the last question, the last segment, which is the PowerPoints. Imagine you can only take away three things from this conversation, three pieces of advice. What would you share? I think Phil Jackson was a great coach for me. He was very into Buddhism, Zen. And so he had this saying, and I wish I could quote it exactly, but the saying was basically, you know, treat every day like the fate of the world depends on it with full awareness that no matter what you do, most of the world is not even going to notice. And I love that quote because it's, it's a good reminder that to live your life with passion and effort and energy and get something out of every single day with a goal in mind. But then keep things in perspective. We're one of 8 billion people on this planet. How many billion people are on the planet now? I don't know. 7 billion? Do you know how many? 7 point something. Whatever it is. So we all get wrapped up in our own life to the extent where sometimes we think we're the center of the universe. We're not, right? We're one of 7, 8 billion. But it's possible to treat your life with a purpose and a mission that gives you great joy and gives you sort of a a pattern that you can wake up and look forward to and a structure that gives you consistency in your life that keeps you on a really good path. And you can do that and achieve great things and achieve your goals. But it's really crucial to keep that perspective because if you don't achieve great things and achieve your goals, it's still okay. There's still 8 billion people out there who don't care whether you achieve your goals or not. And ultimately, what's really important is, do you enjoy the day? Do you wake up every day and look forward to the people you're going to be around, to whatever endeavor you're taking up? That's what's what's important. If you're successful, great. But if you have something that's pushing you and guiding you and people you love, and you're enjoying that process, that's internal success. That's self-satisfaction, which is way more important than what anybody is going to tweet about you or write on social media. That stuff, even though it feels crucial, it doesn't matter. It's what matters is what's in your heart and what's in your, your own world every single day. And that's, so does that make sense? 100%. 
finding that passion, going for it, and then keeping perspective that we're one of 8 billion. There's all kinds of other stuff going on. Don't get too wrapped up in all that. Steve, thank you so much for everything. Thank you for listening to One Hour Intern. I hope that you explore more of our episodes. Follow us at One Hour Intern. The one is spelled using the number one. And if you enjoyed, please rate, follow, and subscribe. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time, thanks. Thanks.